Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 193 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with legendary game designer Warren Spector, who's worked on games such as Ultima 6, Wing Commander, Ultima Underworld, System Shock, Thief, Deus Ex, and Epic Mickey. He got his start in the video game industry working at Origin Systems with Richard Garriott, who was our guest back in episode 105, so definitely check that out if you missed it. Last month, Warren announced that he was leaving his position teaching game design at UT Austin in order to join Other Side Entertainment, a new company that includes many former employees of the widely admired game developer Looking Glass Studios. Last year, Other Side ran a successful Kickstarter to fund Underworld Ascendant, a spiritual sequel to Ultima Underworld. The company also recently announced plans to create System Shock 3. And you can learn more about both games over at OthersideEntertainment.com. And now, here's our interview with Warren Spector. All right, so we're here with Warren Spector. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I saw that Bruce Sterling was your first Dungeon Master. So tell us about that. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine uh, invited me to to go play Dungeons and Dragons one night in 1978. Uh, I'd heard about the game, but I'd never played it. Uh, so I said, "Sure, I'll give it a try." And went over there, and turned out we were going to Bruce Sterling's house. Uh, I'd been to parties with him, and he was a friend of mine, but uh, had never played with him. And uh, after that night, ended up playing in his campaign. Uh, among many others, but I ended up playing at Bruce's campaign for ten years. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was pretty incredible, actually. It was uh, uh, an Asian themed campaign. Uh, I was part of the Rat Gang in the River City of Shang, and we rose from gutter rats to uh, to to real powers in this universe. It was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, and I've heard you say that he was the best DM ever. Uh, he was, uh, boy, at, at risk of offending all the other dungeon masters I've played with, uh, he was the best DM I've ever played with, yeah. So what made him such a good DM? Well, you know, he's, he's a great storyteller, he, and he created an amazing world. This was uh, long before TSR even thought about doing uh, uh, any sort of Asian-themed uh, adventure or, or source book. And he created this this world, and we had... Uh, adversaries. There was one one guy who bedeviled us for ten years named Banky Tigerfang. Uh and and we ended up hating that guy with a passion. Um uh, and as we rose to the ranks, I mean we we ended up with you know an army on our side and Banky Tigerfang had his army on his side. And uh, I'll tell you the the way the, the campaign ended was was genius. And this is the the kind of thing that Bruce as a storyteller could do. Um, we, uh, we, the rat gang rode up on one, uh, one hillside, uh, and Benki Tigerfang rode up with his army on the other side on a hill with a valley in the middle. And we charged down into the middle of the valley and he charged down to the middle of the valley. And that's where Bruce ended it. So to this day, there's no telling who would have won that, that massive battle. Uh, but it, the, he was that kind of storyteller, but even more important, he understood that D&D wasn't about him telling his story. It was about the players collaborating uh, with each other and with him to tell their story. Uh, he adapted to uh, what we wanted to do 
uh, all the time and changed the adventure on the fly based on how we were responding. If we were interested in fighting, he gave us more fighting. If we were interested in uh, in talking, he gave us more talking. Uh, and and so he he would he would modify the uh, the, the adventure to meet our needs on any given night. Uh, and and yet at the same time he would always do what was right. You know, there's this tendency I think among uh, tabletop role players to to say. Okay, I must roll the dice here, and I, I must consult this table to to determine the outcome. And he would do what was right for the story. I, I, there were times when I know he was ignoring the tables and the die rolls <laughs> to make sure that, that the most dramatic things happened. So it was a great collaboration. That's what made him a great dungeon master. Yeah, and so was he working on his science fiction while you knew him? Yeah, he'd, um, he had actually, when I first met him, he had written a story for... Harlan Ellison's uh, Last Dangerous Visions, uh, which to this day has never come out. So his first <laughs> professional work, as the Bruce's first professional work, has never been seen. Um, but uh, his first novel, Involution Ocean, came out when we were, you know, shortly after we started playing. Uh, and so, yeah, he was a writer, and then The Artificial Kid came out. And, you know, guys like uh, William Gibson and, and uh, a bunch of the other cyberpunk writers would come to town and uh, Austin was a, a pretty happening place in the cyberpunk science fiction scene at that time in the, you know, the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, so it was, it was pretty cool time to be here. And yes, he was absolutely writing science fiction at that point. Huh. I mean, do you have any memories from hanging out with him and William Gibson and people like that? Uh, you know, just that there was this real sense that, uh, they certainly felt it. Uh, and, and all of us around certainly felt it that they were, they were changing the world. They were uh, rebellious and uh, fighting against the, uh, uh, the the orthodoxy of science fiction, thinking, you know, I don't know if they ever put it in these terms, but I, I, I certainly thought, hey, they're, they're out there to destroy the, you know, the Asimovs and Heinleins of, of the world and show the, the world of science fiction that there was, uh, there, there was a new sheriff in town. <laughs> and I think they, they pretty much succeeded at that. Uh-huh. I mean, were you ever writing just prose fiction? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I actually had a novel published. When was that? Gosh, it must have been 1986 or 87, something like that, uh, called The Hollow Earth Affair. Uh, it was, it was kind of a, a an homage to The Man from Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I realized how, how much of uh, it must sound like I was a hack writer, which I was. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I I was writing prose back then, in addition to all of the tabletop role playing stuff I was doing, and you know it, I I had uh, the sophomore slump. I I started several other novels and have started several other novels, but uh, that was the only one I finished and the only one that got published. And I mean, you were involved in science fiction fandom as well. Yeah, I, you know I I used to go to science fiction conventions all the time, and. Uh, there was one science fiction convention here in Austin, Texas called ArmadilloCon that uh, in its heyday was uh, what, what used to be called a literary convention. Uh, and that's where, where folks like Bruce and, and uh, William Gibson and uh, Ellen Datlow, who's the editor, fiction editor for Omni at the time, and uh, Lou Shiner and Howard Waldrop and Lisa Tuttle. And I mean, there were all these up and coming writers. Uh, who would be there? But you know, I used to go to Worldcon and and uh, NASFIC and 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 all the other conventions. I still I, I still sometimes go to to cons. I'm I'm debating whether to go to Worldcon this summer. 
so we'll see. And, and my, my wife is a science fiction and, uh, writer at this point. Uh, she writes, uh, with George Martin, the guy who created, uh, you know, Game of Thrones. And, uh, so she goes to all these conventions over the summer and, and, uh, I, I still go to some of them with her. Mm-hmm. You guys met in a comic book store. Yeah, I, I've been a comic book uh, geek all my life. And, uh, and so I, I walked into my, my favorite funny book store, Austin Books and Graphics, and, and one day, and, uh, there she was, and, you know, the, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, uh, we, we talked for a couple of hours that day, and, and, uh, uh, I knew something was gonna happen, but I didn't know what it was, and, uh, eventually she got a job at Steve Jackson Games where I was already working and I thought she was following me, but it was total coincidence. <laughs> and, uh, we ended up dating and uh, the rest is, is history. So did you strike up a conversation about comic books or how did that happen? Uh, well, you know, we talked about that, that first time we, uh, well, frankly, we talked about her marriage, which was a little depressing to me <laughs> and, uh, and, and other, other just sort of general stuff. I was there with my, blind, fat, balding, diabetic dog with a bulging eye. You know, we talked about pets. Uh, we talked about all sorts of stuff, but, but I, I, you know, I went in there at least once a week. Uh, and so, yeah, of course we, we talked about comic books a lot. Still do. <laughs> okay. Well, so tell us about the convention where you met Richard Garriott. I, I met Richard Garriott at an armadillo con actually. Uh, but, uh, well, that was where I, I, first um was on a panel with him i'd actually met him uh earlier because uh steve jackson games my where i, I did my first game work uh licensed the rights to uh auto duel and ogre two steve jackson games products to richard uh when he was starting origins so uh richard uh and and his folks did uh computer game adaptations of two steve jackson Properties. So I got to meet him uh, during the course of, of that development, but we ended up on a couple of panels together uh, at at our Armadillocon and at, at other uh, conventions, and I was just blown away. You know, I mean, I played Ultima Four, and and uh, he was working on Ultima Five when I first met him, and all I could think was, um, it's not the guys doing the the uh, AD and D computer games who are getting it. It's this guy who's getting it, you know, who understands what role playing is really all about. And, uh, you know, I guess I said enough to impress him that a couple of years later, uh, I got a job working with him and, and, uh, there, there again, the rest is history. Right, right. Well, and I saw that the first game, that, at least on Wikipedia that is listed that you worked on is Wing Commander. That's actually not true. Uh, uh, the, the, I guess my Wikipedia page needs to be updated. Somebody get on that. <laughs> Uh, no, I, the, the first thing I did, uh, when I got to Origin was work with Richard on, uh, Ultima 6. Uh, I, I was his producer and we did a bunch of design work together. Uh, and, uh, he taught me a ton. Uh, when I, I got there, I was coming out of, uh, six years of working in tabletop role playing and, and I was thinking, uh, I'm going to show these computer guys what interactivity is all about. But uh, within a couple of weeks, I realized I knew nothing, and they just schooled me. So it started <laughs> out with Ultima 6, uh, and then pretty much around the same time, I started working with Chris Roberts on Wing Commander and Paul Nurath on Space Rogue, and uh, 
I, I was uh, wearing a lot of hats back then and working very, very hard. <laughs> I had a question about Wing Commander because uh, it's rumored online that the Kilrathi were inspired by the Kazinti from Larry Niven's known space books. And there's a Niven sector in the game, but I can't get anyone to confirm that that's, uh, that was directly inspired by it. I, I think it's safe to say that uh, that Chris was definitely inspired by that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, were you, did you guys, you guys talked, I guess, around the office about authors like Larry Niven and things like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there there were a lot of uh, science fiction fans and fantasy fans at uh, at Origin. So uh, we, you know, we used to talk about uh, the Dragonlance books and about Jerry Purnell and uh, all all sorts of uh, science fiction stuff like that. Well, you mentioned uh, Ultima Six, which is actually just one of my absolute all time favorite games. And I heard you say that you and Richard were like in a room late at night coming kind of hammering out the story for that game. I was wondering if there was anything more you could say about that. Well, it wasn't just a night. It was weeks. Uh, I, I went over to his house, uh, and we spent weeks working on that, uh, you know, defining every quest, uh, every character, what every character's motivation was, uh, every, every significant object in the game, uh, designing out specific puzzles and multiple solutions to every puzzle, and, uh, so I was, I was there, uh, from the beginning of the design effort, uh, and learned Richard's way of designing, uh, which involved filling out massive notebooks, uh, full of every detail that the team was going to need to implement the game. Uh, and I, I actually haven't worked like that, but, uh, seeing you know, the master at work <laughs> is uh, pretty eye opening. Was the idea about the, the gargoyles, was that there at the beginning or is that something that you guys developed? No, that was, that was, well, I was there at the beginning. So it was, uh, it was something that was there at the beginning. And, uh, you know, Richard in Ultima Six really wanted to show that there wasn't just one moral code, like he'd established in, in Ultima Four and pursued in Ultima Five, you know, the, the virtues. And, and what he wanted to look at was that, uh, those virtues were not absolute, that there could be different value sets. Um, but that was just the kind of thing that got me excited about what Richard was doing. He was, he wasn't just making, you know, what we called Monty Hall dungeons where you would, you know, break down a door, fight the monster in the room, grab the treasure, and then break down the next door and fight the next monster and grab the next treasure. He was really, you know, telling stories that were about something. And in that way, he was very much like Bruce, you know, and, and I, I hope very much like, uh, I've been able to accomplish in the games I've made since. Uh, one of the things I always do is, you know, think through what is this game really about? What's the subtext? What's the theme we're exploring? Uh, how do we let players, uh, interact and with, with these themes and answer the questions that we're asking? And Richard was all over that, you know, long, long time ago. Well, I mean, just one of my absolute favorite game design stories too is from Ultima Six. It's the Sherry the Mouse story. Could you tell that story? Oh, yeah. Um, well, there, you know, we, we tried to come up with, uh, uh, pre-scripted ways of solving puzzles and, and usually more than one. Uh, but there was one puzzle in the game, uh, that where there was only one solution. And basically it was, um, a lever on uh, one side of a portcullis and the player came up on the other side of the portcullis, you know, on the opposite side, uh, away from the lever. And you had to flip the lever to raise the portcullis to continue making progress. And uh, the only way 
here are the, the air quotes around only. <laughs> the only way to flip the lever was to use the telekinesis spell. And I saw one of our testers, uh, it was a guy named Mark Shafkin, actually, who I've worked with again over the years. Um, but Mark was there, didn't have the telekinesis spell, and I was sort of rubbing my hands with glee, thinking, oh, this guy is screwed. He, he's not <laughs> going to be able to make progress. And um, what I didn't realize was that there was just enough of a simulation on that portcullis. It didn't quite come down to the to the floor. There was a little gap there. And he had a character uh, in his party named Sherry the Mouse, uh, who was, you know, surprise, surprise, a mouse. And she was small enough to fit under the portcullis and get to the lever and then flip the lever, raising the portcullis. And, and that was... Uh, a, a revelatory moment for me because he had found a solution to that puzzle that the developers of the puzzle didn't know existed and which I suspect no one in the world had ever tried before. And, and it was a total accident, but that was the moment where I said, I'm going to do that for a living for the rest of my career and do it on <laughs> purpose. Uh, Cause it's so powerful. I mean, when a player discovers uh, a new solution to a problem and gets to show how clever and creative they are. That's, that's what games can do that no other medium can do. And, and that was the first time I had ever seen that happen. Right. So are there other good examples of that you can think of where you were able later to do it on purpose? Um, well, gosh, I mean, look at every game I've worked on <laughs> since, you know, uh, Deus Ex is probably the, the classic example. Um, uh, there were all sorts of times when players discovered things that the team didn't, didn't know would work. You know, uh, uh, I was watching one of our uh, testers demonstrate the game for some uh, publisher side executives. And this, this was a year after we shipped the game, by the way. And uh, he was uh, in the, the Statue of Liberty in the, the main area of the Statue of Liberty. And there was a spot where there were, uh, laser triggers in front of a doorway and uh, guards walking behind it um, on a timed path. And I had been in that place a hundred times myself testing. and I'd seen probably a thousand people go through it. And he figured out a way to solve that problem. Uh, the, both the guards and the laser trigger problem uh, with one shot uh from a pistol, which was the weakest weapon in the game, just by moving around explosive barrels and putting them in the right place and everything. It was, it was amazing because a year after we shipped, this guy showed me something that, again, probably no one in the world had ever tried before. And I was watching him set it up and knew what he was trying to do. But all I could think as one of the guys who worked on the game was, is that going to work? <laughs> is that going to, and sure enough, it, it worked. So, um, you know, I mean, we, the, the whole point of Deus Ex was to create situations where players can find their own solutions to problems. Uh, and uh, I think it worked pretty well. They, at Disney Epic Mickey, same thing, though. Core gamers, I don't think, gave it much of a shot. But if you look at Disney Epic Mickey, it's the same core philosophy. It's really about designers getting off the stage and letting players get on it. Uh, and designers, instead of showing off how clever and creative they are at creating puzzles, uh, letting uh, players show how clever and creative they are at solving problems. That's that's what games are all about for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so tell us about Ultima Underworld. How did you get involved with that? Uh, you know, it was uh, it was a, a CES show 
before there was an E3, games games were shown uh, at at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, and uh, Paul Nurath, uh, who had, was had just started a company called Blue Sky Productions, uh, and with whom I had worked on Space Rogue, uh, a game he did earlier. Um, he came to the booth and, to show off a demo of the very first in the history of humankind fully textured first-person 3D real-time game. And it, it was just a tech demo. Uh, and it was funny because some of the other people from Origin you know, looked at it and I, I think they didn't want to show how impressed they were. I, <laughs> I, I don't know what was going on, but they looked at it and they sort of shrugged their shoulders and went, yeah, okay. Um, and I looked at it and thought, holy cow, the world just changed. And so I, I went to my boss, Dallas Snell, who was the VP of product development at Oregon at the time, and said, you've got to let me work on this. You've got to let me work on this game. And uh, he didn't. He gave it to someone else, which really ticked me off. Um, but after a while, that guy left. And uh, I said, Dallas, give me that game. It was still very early in development. Uh, before the narrative was, you know, was in place, before the TV was in place. And um, so I got to work on that with the insanely, insanely talented Blue Sky Productions team uh, that was, you know, led by Paul and, and then later by Doug Church, who's uh, one of the secret masters of gaming, probably the, the best designer, best programmer, smartest guy I've ever met. I mean, I still talk to him all the time. We're still friends. We've worked together on many projects, but... Um, uh, that team was amazing. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I actually met with the team, uh, and uh, I, I think they were having a conversation in Old English or something. <laughs> but I I walked into that room and and realized that I was the dumbest person in the room, and that was awesome. <laughs> you know, when you have a team like that, you know something great is going to happen. Well, right. The thing about Ultima Underworld is that, like you were saying, in the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons games, you would just walk into a featureless brick room and there would be 58 orcs in there. And you're like, what are these 58 orcs doing in this room? It makes no sense. But Underworld really felt like a real place. You could imagine, you know, how these monsters ate and where they lived. And the whole thing just seemed to make sense in a way I'd never seen before in a dungeon game. Well, that was certainly the plan. You know, it was it was about uh, creating a believable ecosystem, a believable world. You know, I, one of the, the, the interesting and fun things is uh, Origins' uh, motto was we create worlds. And Paul, having come from that background, having worked with Origin, uh, I think took that with him. And on Underworld, the team really embraced it uh, and created a world that made sense. Uh, it, you know, again, I, was, I still talk to Doug all the time. I was talking to him the other day. And uh, what he said something that was you know, really brilliant. He said, uh, what, what we were doing back then was creating open world games in corridors. <laughs> you know, they're, they're that um, fully fleshed out and that open to uh, player expression, uh, despite the fact that they're set underground or, you know, in the case of System Shock, for example, you know, in the corridors of a, a space station. So the, the, the fact that, uh, that people got it was really gratifying. Yeah, and Ultima Underworld, it was really interesting, too, because it was hard. At the beginning, you, you have to get food, and you have to find torches, or you can't see anything, and you really feel like you've been thrown into this dungeon with nothing, and you have to figure out how to survive. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, what, what would happen if you were really imprisoned in a dungeon? That, that's uh, creating a believable world means, uh, means doing that sort of thing. But uh, don't forget about the giant rats. I mean, you also have to defeat some giant rats. <laughs> um, no, it, it's, uh, it, it was about making you believe that you were there. That, that was uh, actually one of the things I, I learned from Richard, and uh, I think we expressed even better in the first-person games like Underworld and System Shock and, and Thief and Deus Ex. You know, it, it's not about you controlling uh, a puppet. You know, most I mean, third-person games in particular but many games are about you controlling a puppet that has a personality that's imposed on you, uh, that has abilities that are imposed on you. Um, we wanted it to feel like you, the human, in, in this alternate world. Uh, and, and that's something that, that uh, all of us who come out of the origin and, and uh, looking glass uh, tradition uh, have, have strived to do uh, ever since. It's just, that's a really powerful thing when, when what you're doing in a game says more about you as a person than it does about the character you're playing. Um, that's another thing that games do that other media can't. It's, it's really saying more about you uh, and what you think is right and what you think is wrong and what you think is uh, an appropriate way to, to deal with a character or a, a problem uh, that's important. And uh, the ultimate game, the traditional ultimate game, the numbered ultimate games, uh, did some of that. But once we switched over to that first person view, uh, we really could make it about you. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the character in System Shock was just the hacker. And the character in the Underworld was just the avatar, you know, because we didn't want to impose even a name or a personality on, on the, the player character. Right. So, so you mentioned in System Shock, the protagonist is this hacker character. And obviously, would you say there was a lot of Bruce Sterling, William Gibson uh, influence on that game? Yeah, I, I don't know how much I can take credit for that. I mean, again, there was a Looking Glass team that, that, really, that really drove a lot of the creative. I mean, there were times when, when they drove me crazy. <laughs> um, but uh, at that point, cyberpunk fiction was what it was all about, you know, and uh, ideas of of uh, what the, the future could really be like. Uh, the world of, uh, what is it, Zaibatsu, you know, international corporations, and a, a world of, uh, where data is, is currency, and uh, where you know, human augmentation is a reality. I mean, all that stuff uh, was, was sort of in the ether. Uh, and everybody's, you know, there on the team was a science fiction fan. So yeah, of course there was influence. You know, the People ask me all the time, um, you know, where do you get ideas? And, and every, everybody gets that question all the time, who's, you know, writers, filmmakers, and everything. And you get, you get ideas from the cultural zeitgeist, you know, what's in the air? And uh, at that time, uh, cyberpunk was what was in the air. You know, back in episode 84, I interviewed Austin Grossman, who worked on Underworld 2 and System Shock. I just wonder if you had any memories of working with him. Uh, Austin, yeah, I, I still talk to him all the time too. Austin is a brilliant writer. Uh, but even beyond the, his brilliance as a writer, he gets the idea of getting off the stage, that the player's story is more important than the story he wants to tell. So he knows how to, uh, engage players and let players, uh, craft unique experience, experiences from, um, 
the, the, the narrative tools that he provides. You know, it's like in System Shock, everybody on the station is dead. I mean, that came out of discussions that Paul and, and Doug and I had where, you know, we, we lamented the pathetic state of conversation systems in games, uh, which, by the way, still exists today. There have been no advances in conversation systems since the late 80s. Somebody needs to work on that. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, we, we didn't know how to do conversations, so we killed everybody off. And Austin really figured out how to, how to tell a story uh, through, you know, the video logs and audio logs and, and uh, you know, what's going on behind that door and using sound to tell stories. I mean, the, the whole team was involved in that. But Austin, uh, despite being, a, a, like I said, a brilliant writer, uh, understood the power of letting players tell their own stories. Um, and there were... There were many times where, you know, Doug and, and uh, Austin and I would be sitting around late at night going over, you know, narrative documents, story documents, and, and uh, tweaking them and tuning them and uh, seeing them come to life was, uh, was pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. And so it seems like, like these two games, Ultima Underworld and System Shock, seem to have just had a massive influence on computer role-playing games. If, uh, if you look at the Ultima Ascendant website, there are testimonials from just it's like a who's who of CRPG designers saying these were the games that really made me want to do this. Yeah. You know, it's always nice to, there, there are a variety of measures of success. Okay. Some people measure success in terms of sales and some people measure success in terms of, uh, you know, fame and others in terms of, of revenue. And none of us ever define success that way. I mean, it, it's always nice to make a lot of money and get famous and everything. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what at least I was thinking, I can't speak for, for Paul or Doug or anybody else on the team, but uh, especially when we were working on, on Deus Ex, uh, but, but even back in the Underworld and System Shock days, um, having an influence and changing things is a measure of success, too. And I remember, you know, sitting around uh, with the guys at, at, at well, Blue Sky and then later Looking Glass, you know, the same company uh, with a different name. But I remember sitting around and, and just talking about why isn't everybody making games like this? Uh, and for years, you know, people may say that, that they were influenced, but, but I didn't really see the influence. I, you know, it was only after Deus Ex that people started coming up to me and saying, uh, I'm changing the, not, this isn't the reason I want to make games, but I'm changing the way I make games based on what, what this game. Uh, so I think Underworld, System Shock, Thief, Deus Ex, uh, you know, now Dishonored, I think we, we did have an influence. Um, games like Knights of the Old Republic and Back in the Day No One Was Forever and uh, Fable and, and uh, you know, games like that. Would, would they have happened without games like Underworld and System Shock? I'm not sure. You know. I like to think they wouldn't, but that might just be my ego running wild. <laughs> well, like and, and Bioshock in particular, this idea of exploring a utopia that's gone wrong seems to me drawn straight out of Ultima Underworld. Yeah, I, I certainly uh, the Bioshock games uh, uh, grew out of that tradition. Uh, Ken Levine worked at, at Looking Glass uh, for, for several years and was involved in, in uh, the Thief projects uh, and then in System Shock 2. Uh, the Bioshock games are, are more linear and more uh, uh, designer narrative driven than I think the traditional Looking Glass games and, and Underworld System Shock were. 
but there's clearly you can clearly clearly see the influence. Uh, I, I call Bioshock and, and games like Half Life uh, sort of kissing cousins uh, of what we were all trying to do at Origin and Looking Glass and Ion Storm. Uh, but certainly there's influence there. Yeah. And so when you look back at uh, Ultima Underworlds and System Shock now, are there things that you really wish you could go back and change? Um, you know, I tend not to look back too much. Um, they were they were the best we could do at the time with the knowledge and tools we had. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, Other Side and uh, Underworld Ascendant and uh, and soon, I hope, System Shock 3, is that we've learned a lot in 20 years uh, about what works and what doesn't. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, tools on the, the tech side that we didn't have. So we've got new design knowledge and new, new tech tools. Uh, and so I think we can do an even better job of immersing players in a uh, deeply simulated world than we could then. But no, I wouldn't go back and change anything. We, we, we worked hard. We did the best we could. Um, I like to think we made a difference. Uh, you can't ask for much more than that. Right. Well, yes. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about these new games, Underworld Ascendant and System Shock 3. Kind of what's the current state of development on those? Uh, Underworld Ascendant is, uh, is, you know, far enough along that they've got um, a good, solid gameplay core. Uh, and they know what they're going after. And they've built uh, a bunch of test levels uh, that are really coming coming along nicely. Uh, they've built levels that are going to ship uh, with the game. Uh, in, in fairly typical origin and uh, looking glass fashion, uh, they haven't finalized the, um, the graphical look yet because that's, uh, for, for many of us, uh, graphics come last, so uh, they still have, have some work to do on that front, but uh, the gameplay's really coming along. Um, System Shock 3, very early. <laughs> very, very, very early. Early enough that uh, I, I can't really say too much about it. Um, you know, I, I agreed to join Other Side, uh, what was it, the first day of DICE uh, this year. So, what is that, three weeks ago or something? Uh, so, I'm working on concept documents and pitch documents and uh, and looking ahead and thinking about what, what the design is really going to be. but. Uh, it's in the very, very earliest stages. We've, we've just started doing concept art, and, you know, at, at, you know, two pieces of concept art, something like that. So, uh, Shock 3 is very early. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously a lot of people work on these games, and you're listed as a producer mostly for, for the games that you've worked on. Could you just say a little bit about what exactly your role is going to be on, say, Underworld Descendant and System Shock 3? Uh, on Underworld Ascendant, uh, I, well, I've been on, on uh, other side's uh, board of advisors since the start. And so, uh, you know, they send me design documents and they send me concept art and they, they uh, send me videos and builds and stuff and I give them feedback and that will continue. I, you know, now that I'm working for the company, it'd be great if they let me play a larger role. But, but I, I think, you know, I'm just going to be an advisor on that one. Uh, on System Shock 3, I'm going to be um, which uh, the creative director, the game director, uh, whatever, whatever, you want to call it? A, I I think of it as the guy with one more vote than everybody else on the team <laughs> combined. Uh, but I'm I'm working on the concept uh, and uh, right now determining what the game is going to be. Uh, I'm going to bring in a, a brain trust, you know, a, a strong programmer 
strong artist, strong systems and mechanics designer, maybe someone to handle uh, operational details so I don't have to. Um, but uh, I'm conceptualizing the game and uh, going to, uh, to to drive it to completion. Well, because it seems like a big part of your role on on these earlier games was to interface with the corporation and say, no, this is a really good game. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. <laughs> well, I certainly did enough of that. That's for sure. Um, you know, nowadays, uh, producers uh, are typically just schedulers and uh, people managers. But I, I was lucky enough to get in um, into uh, digital games at a point where it was still possible uh, to be a creative producer. So I've always, uh, not I, I, I should say past tense, I used to. I don't handle schedules and budgets anymore. I can't stand that stuff. Uh, and luckily, I've, I've, you know, I've respawned where I don't have to do it. But I used to handle a bunch of that stuff. Uh, but I was always involved in the creative. Uh, from Ultima 6 on, uh, I, I was able to merge the, the creative and, the, uh, and the, the, what would now be considered the production side of uh, game development. Um, so again, I, I just got lucky. Nowadays, I'm not sure that creative producer role exists. Um, and it's a shame because it's a, it's a great role, I'll tell you. I, uh, you asked me if I would go back and change anything on the game. So I'll tell you, if I look back on my career, I wouldn't change anything either. <laughs> I mean, is it, is it, it must be nice, though, or is it having the kickstarted games now that you don't have to be justifying anything to the larger company? Well, I have real mixed feelings about Kickstarter, actually. Uh, you know, you never want to say never. I may, I may do one at some point. Um, but, you know, on a Kickstarter, you have, pick a number, you know, 10,000 people you have to satisfy instead of a publisher where you have a small group of, you know, decision makers that you have to satisfy. Uh, I think there are advantages both ways. Uh, I don't think uh, Kickstarter is... Uh, you know, idyllic or, or, you know, utopian. It's, it, it carries with it its own pluses and minuses. Um, certainly for traditional indie developers, uh, it's nice that there's another way to get funding other than going through publishers. I think what Kickstarter has done is it's, it's broadened the, uh, the, the creative range of games because uh, smaller developers uh, can find a way to, to actually fund their, their, ideas uh that's that's one of the more exciting things that's going on in games right now is you know if you have an idea there's a way to fund it there are tools to build it and there are you know a bunch of ways to reach an audience with it so we're, we're seeing variety in, in games now that, that we haven't seen in decades so it's a it's a pretty exciting time for games i mean what would you say are some of the challenges for a game like underworld descendant competing in a market where there's games like bioshock infinite that have what, like 10 to, uh, it would be probably like 100 times the budget, right? 50 to 100 times the budget? Well, I don't know how, how many times, but uh, certainly uh, at other side, we're trying to do things differently. Uh, I won't speak for the company or for Paul at this point, but speaking for myself, um, you know, at Ion Storm, we had 100-person teams, and at, at uh, Junction Point, we grew to uh, 100 no, 200 people. What am I talking about? We grew to 200 people. And on, on Epic Mickey 2, if you look at the credits, uh, we had 800 people touch that game in one way or another. 
And I never want to do that again as long <laughs> as I live. Uh, so the idea of being able to go back and, and work on a smaller team with a smaller budget and getting creative about it, um, being, being creative uh, with how you develop your games using not outsourcers, but partners, uh, real collaborative partners. And here the air quotes around this too, growing the team uh, externally, I, I think is a really exciting idea. Working on, on the Epic Mickey games, uh, we worked with, I think it was, you know, 15 to 20 uh, outside companies, some of which, you know, actually built levels for us. Uh, and they weren't just outsourcers. They were genuine partners. And out of those, those 15 or 20, there are a handful that I, I can't wait to work with again. And so I'm planning on uh, System Shock 3 having a small team with a bunch of external partners. Uh, and in that way, I think we can create smaller, well, we can create competitive games uh, with smaller budgets and much smaller teams, which means instead of, I call it playing defense, you know, instead of uh, protecting the team from uh, outside influences, let's just say, uh, I can be uh, more in the trenches again, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I think is so interesting is that the two most successful video game Kickstarters, to my knowledge, are Chris Roberts' Star Citizen and Richard Garriott's Shroud of the Avatar. Yeah. Why do you think former Origin employees have been so successful with crowdfunding? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. You know, maybe I should do one. Maybe, <laughs> it, maybe there's some magic. I don't know. Um, I think it, it has to be, okay, has to be is too strong. If I were a betting man, I would say it comes down to a few things. One is Kickstarter uh, is, in a sense, a great place for uh, nostalgia. You know, there's a built-in audience for Ultimate Games. There's a built-in audience for Wing Commander games, and no one is making games like that. Or you could make that argument. So there's this this existing fan base and pent-up desire. That, uh, that they can take advantage of. And look at some of the other successful Kickstarters beyond Chris and Rick. Um, you know, there, there are also, there are a lot of nostalgia plays on Kickstarter. So I think it's, it's partly that. I think it's partly that um, there's a certain celebrity aspect to it. You know, Richard Garrett and Chris Roberts, their names are, are well known. Uh, their reputation for creating great games is well known. So that probably plays into it. And then, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned from those guys when I first started working at Origin was the power of a clear, compelling vision. Um, you know, I, like, it's what are the things you're unwilling to compromise on? Uh, you have to be able to answer that question. I will not compromise on this. And Chris and, and Richard really understand that. If not consciously, then unconsciously. They they always have a vision, and they are uncompromising uh, in the realization of that vision. And I think that probably comes through in their uh, their Kickstarter campaigns and their their follow up, you know, uh, websites and you know donation opportunities and all that. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. But man, I think after this, I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, you use the word magic, and I feel like maybe, I mean, I'm a complete rationalist, but I, I wonder if there is some magic involved, because it just seems like Origin, there was just something magical about it. Maybe it is the nostalgia, like you said, but it just seems like there was something magical about Origin that 
nothing has quite recaptured for me since then. Well, you know, it's it's kind of true. Uh, there was a for me. I don't. I don't want to speak for everyone, but there was a feeling at Origin that was really special. Look, Looking Glass had a lot of it too, and I I hope people would tell you that Ion Storm Austin and Junction Point had it, but but at Origin there was this real sense. It was tangible. You could feel it that we were going to change the world. You know, and that that is a pretty powerful thing to believe. And you know, looking back on it now, we kind of did not not Origin specifically, but you know, digital games ended up changing the world. And I don't know if if everybody making games back then or even today realized it or felt it or feels it, but. Um, there was some magic to being part of Origin, and one of one of my minor regrets is uh, when I was working there. I, I, I think I was the twenty sixth person hired by the company, and I really thought I was going to retire from Origin and get a gold watch and all of that. And that's just not the way this business work works. Uh, and even if it did, then there would have come a point where I just had to do a startup and do my own thing and all. But but um, it was a very special place, there's no doubt. And the, the fact that it was a special place probably resulted, it helped, helped us create special games. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Ion Storm. I have kind of a funny story about how I almost got a job as a writer at Ion Storm. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so because uh, my best friend from high school was working at Ion Storm Dallas. And so I was hanging out with a bunch of those guys. And I moved out, out there after college and was just trying to get a job as a writer in video games. And I realized in retrospect, pitching yourself as a writer was not the best approach to take. But I, I had a bunch of stories published. And so somebody showed them to somebody who was um, hiring for Deus Ex 2. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so months went by, I was just hanging out and I kept emailing and the guy said, oh, you know, you know, keep checking in, I'll, I'll, I'll set up an interview, interview for you. And my parents were taking a trip to Europe and they invited me to come with them. And it was a week-long trip, and I'd been waiting months and months. I was like, oh, what are the odds I'm going to get called for an interview this one week, right? So I, I left for Europe, and I'm in Europe, and the, that morning I check my email, and the person says, oh, can you come in for an interview tomorrow, basically? Oh, no. And I said, oh, I really, really <laughs> want to do this, but I'm in Europe. I'll be back in a week. And oh, uh, by the time I get back, they had already hired someone else. Wow. <laughs> well, so we came this close to working together. That's crazy. Well, if they would have hired I don't know if they actually would have hired me, but... Uh, Okay, so we came this close, this close. You're holding your arms more farther you, apart, right? There you go. I painted an audio <laughs> picture for you. Um, but yeah, no, that would have been really cool, though. But I mean, one thing that really struck me, though, is, you know, hanging out, hanging around the video game people at that time was, uh, you know, I would say I want to be a writer for video games. And a lot of people would say, like, what does a video game need a writer for? You know, there was a lot of that attitude. And I saw you say that you went into one product meeting and you were told, Warren, you're not allowed to say the word story ever again. Yeah, yeah, that was a magic moment for me, <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, you know, I, at Origin, we never felt that way. At Looking Glass, we never felt that way. Um, Though, again, we wanted players to tell their own story. I mean, the, the ideal is that every player at the end of the game looks back on a unique experience. That's, that's the, the grail. Um, but we were all, all into narrative games. Um, and I've never 
I've never compromised on that. Uh, you know, I never let anybody talk me out of it. But there was one executive who I will not name at one company that I will not name that I worked for, uh, who said that in a, uh, in a, a meeting. And that was kind of a point where I knew my days were numbered at that <laughs> company. Um, but, uh, no, things, things have certainly changed. I think at this point, uh, no one doubts the importance of, of narrative. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, writers can play a, a part in that. The, uh, the, the interesting challenge for me is finding writers, A, who have the technical chops, you know, who are programmer enough to understand the difference between game writing and screenwriting or, or novel writing, uh, and B, are willing to help craft narratives that belong to the player and not to them. Uh, so for me, finding writers is a real challenge. And I've been, I've been incredibly lucky, uh, you know, again, getting to work with Austin, uh, Austin Grossman was great, and um, a little later on, I, I found uh, Sheldon Picotti, who was the lead writer on Deus Ex um, and uh, Invisible War. Uh, finding guys like that who, who get the whole immersive simulation idea uh, is not easy, and I've been very lucky to have found a couple of those, and uh, I'll be looking for more come uh, System Shock 3 time, so... Uh, uh, if you're out there, maybe send me a resume and some samples. Mm. Okay, awesome. One thing I saw you talking about that I thought was really interesting is you said at one point you want to do what you called a one-block role-playing game, where the whole yeah. book, the whole game takes place on one city block. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been I've been thinking about that for decades. <laughs> and the, the thing here's here's the thing. Um, you know, there are, if you look at uh, a lot of the, the games that that sort of claim to be about player choice and consequences and all that, which is kind of kind of what I, I, I do for a living. If you look at them, a lot of them are, are open world games. Um, and, and I kind of feel like like most of those games are simulated an inch deep and miles wide. And what I try to do in my games and and what what we did at Origin and Looking Glass in, in those games, was try to simulate uh, an inch wide and miles deep, and I just find that idea more compelling, you know, because it, there's there's more room for player expression in in a deeper simulation, and so um, you know, boiling that down, I, I, I used to talk to Doug Church about this, and he wants to do a one room role playing game, which I think is a little too minimal. Okay. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I kind of I know the setting for a one-block role-playing game that I would, I would explore, and I have some ideas about how I would do it. But the reality is, if I knew how to do it, I would do it. And I don't have it figured out enough in my mind to, to have the guts to go and ask anybody to fund it. So someday, maybe I'll figure it out. And to be frank, you know, the, as I start thinking about System Shock 3, um, you know... Shodan's going to play a role, and Citadel Station's going to play a role, and you know maybe maybe Citadel is going to be the one block. You know who knows? So uh, we'll see how that goes. Hmm. I mean, it seems like the real challenge for games is to make games that don't involve hitting things or that aren't primarily concerned with hitting things, and that's so hard to do on a computer. Um, it's hard, but not impossible. You know, um, 
the, the reality is it's, it's very easy for us to simulate the pulling of a virtual trigger. And it's very, very hard for us to simulate a conversation. I, I was saying this earlier, you know, I defy anybody to show me a conversation system in a game today that isn't identical to the conversation systems that Richard Garrett was using in the 80s. It's just, you know, the, the big innovation in conversation systems now is that there's a timer on your choice on the branching tree. And I just don't think that's good enough. But, but again, if I knew how to solve that problem, I would. I'm not, I'm not you know, disparaging everybody in the game business. What I am saying is I wish um, we would spend a little bit less time on combat AI and a little bit more on um, non-combat AI, on creating characters you can bond with on an emotional level um, without putting the, those characters in the context of a completely linear storyline. You know, if, you're, if you, you put players on rails, which a lot of the narrative games do now, uh, of course you can tell a great story. I mean, it's a, it's a linear narrative. It belongs to the writer or the designer and not to the player. But what I think we need to be working on is more compelling characters that are simulated as deeply as we can now simulate a physical world. And, you know, once we start focusing more on characters, uh, I think you'll see both more um, player-driven stories uh, and also less of a focus on, on combat. But right now, we, we either do combat in a player-driven space really well or uh, emotion and character in a completely linear space and no one uh, knows or no one's talking about and no one's making games that reveal how you combine those two and create a player-driven environment with real emotionally uh, compelling characters. Um, and I would like to think we're going to tackle that in System Shock 3, because somebody has to fail a million times before we succeed. Um, but it's still early days, so we'll see. But uh, that's that's certainly on my list of things that uh, I'm thinking about for System Shock 3. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this video. Someone just told me about it, but apparently someone plays through Deus Ex, and there's a flagpole you can pick up near the beginning of the game, and every time they talk to a character, they just put it down next to the person. That's great. I love hearing that. Uh, you know, that was the best we could do at the time. Um, you know, the, the fact is in Deus Ex, the world was, was pretty responsive and the characters were paying attention. That's, that, you want a world that, that notices what players are doing and responds appropriately. And it, it's like you asked about Underworld and System Shock before. Would I change anything? No, and on Deus Ex, we did the best we could at the time, you know. So there were plenty of ways to break Deus Ex. And, you know, a lot of people on the team got upset about the ways in which players broke, broke the game. But, I, you know, I kept on saying, it's, once they buy it, it's their game. If they're having fun, more power to them. You know, it's their game. That's, that was the whole point of the game. It's, it, you know, you play the way you want to. It's, I, I, I actually have a, a mission statement that I've, I've carried with me for the last 15 years at, from one studio to another, it's all about player empowerment and, and uh, players telling their own story and sharing authorship with players. And 
I've got a 12-page version of it that no one would read, and an eight-page <laughs> version that no one would read, and a four-page version that no one would read, and a two-page version, and a one-page, and a paragraph. And finally, I, I got sick and tired of it, so I boiled it down to two words. Play style matters. How the player decides to interact with your game and your game world is the only thing that matters. And the world should notice and respond appropriately. And all we can do is do a little bit better with each game at making playstyle matter. Right. Yeah. I don't mention that as a criticism. It's just an example. Like, how, how could you possibly uh, foresee something like that? And how could you possibly program a game that would take every kind of random thing like that into account? Well, you know, we'll find out someday. Uh, it, it's a great goal uh, <laughs> to have a game that responds to flagpoles. Um, <laughs> But uh, maybe someday we'll get there. I don't know. You know, a lot of people think it's going to take, uh, you know, uh, a lot more AI uh, research than we've, we've done so far. But, you know, in a sense, games are, are a business of smoke and mirrors. We don't have to pass the Turing test. Uh, we just have to create a, uh, a, a convincing, believable character. We don't have to create... Um, the ultimate AI, you know, that that's probably better left to uh, academics uh, than, than to game developers. But uh, I have confidence that someday we'll get there. Someone's going to nail it and figure out how to do not perfect characters, but emotionally compelling characters that can contribute to uh, a player's story instead of a writer's story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's just one other thing I want to run by you. So I've been following Richard Garriott's Stroud of the Avatar um, crowdfunding stuff really obsessively because I just find it so fascinating. It seems to me such a amazingly effective um, example of creating a community and having the community support your efforts. But the the thing that's really struck me is it seems like for all the time that I've been playing games, it's been kind of a, a an arms race of features. The, the graphics are better or the you know controls are better or whatever and it seems to me that that all that stuff is kind of flattening out and that we're moving into an era where the community around the game is going to be the main selling point of the game not really the game itself like do you like the people who play this game do you like talking to them and having them help you out and stuff like that mm-hmm. um yeah I, I i can see where you would you would get that idea and i can see the appeal of it um i God, this is, I'm never going to work again <laughs> in my life. But, you know, I, I've always just made or worked on the games that I wanted to make or work on and hope there are enough people out there in the world who like them that I get to make another one. Um, I understand the need to, uh, to involve the community, um, but I've never done it. So I think on System Shock 3, <laughs> I'm going to find out if I like it or not. Uh, because, you're correct, certainly, in, in saying that it's a necessary part of, of the business. But um, other than the, the sort of after-the-fact community that built up around uh, Deus Ex and Disney Epic Mickey, um, the post-ship community, uh, I've never actually been a part of something like that. Well, I guess, you know, like the, the, the Ultimate Dragons, you know, were, uh, continue to be a community built up around the Ultimate Games. And... Um, the, the TTLG, you know, the Through the Looking Glass folks are a, uh, a, an immersive simulation community. Uh, but that was all after the fact. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how, to me, how I deal with involving the community during the creation of the game. That's, that'll be something new to me. But, you know, frankly, 
That's one of the reasons why uh, I'm, I'm leaving the University of Texas at this moment, because even in the three years I've been here, uh, you know, running the Virginia Sam's Gaming Academy, the, the game business and the medium have changed so much that I, I, I feel like I'm falling behind. And so uh, I have a lot to learn and, uh, and love the fact that I have a lot to learn. So that's, this is a good time for me to be getting back into development. Uh, so uh, get back to me on that whole community thing <laughs> so a little bit later on, and we'll see uh, if I have a, a different or better answer for you. <laughs> okay, so unfortunately, we're out of time. So just to wrap things up, do you want to talk maybe a little bit about the, the academic program you just mentioned? Just anything else you want to let people know about? Um, well, you know, the DSGA uh, was, was formed uh, three years ago. Uh, we, we run two classes through the program. And it's about, um, you know, training creative and uh, production leadership uh, for the game business. I think we do a very bad job of that, um, of, of helping people make that transition from being individual contributors to being uh, leaders. And so, uh, you know, uh, the university supported me in creating a program designed to uh, teach leadership skills, communication, conflict resolution, uh, some project management, um, creative vision making, creative vision maintaining, all that stuff. And so um, it was, you know, I, I needed a change of pace when uh, Junction Point shut down, uh, and this was a good one. Um, I needed some new challenges, and, and being a part of an academic uh, program was certainly uh, a new set of challenges. But now, like I said, there's, there's a lot to learn about the business I've been in for 33 years. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to those new challenges now. All right. So we've been speaking with Warren Spector about these upcoming games, Underworld Ascendant and System Shock 3. So, Warren, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It was great. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Warren Spector for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Shazmaster1984 in the UK, who writes, Ultimate Geek Podcast. This is easily the best podcast on iTunes. The host is intelligent, articulate, has awesome guests, and always points me in the direction of new, interesting material to geek out on. Fan for life. So big thanks again to Shazmaster1984 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Molly Benson and Colin Cheney, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.